as you listen, uh, as I read, once I'm done, I'll thank God for his word. Uh, Why don't you join me by saying, thanks be to God. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. When I sit down with a prospective member of our church, I have two main questions for him or her. And those are, what is the gospel and how did you come to believe it? You see, when someone becomes part of a church, they're becoming a partner in the gospel a partner to portray the gospel, to protect the gospel, and to promote the gospel. So it makes sense that that person should know the gospel. When someone becomes part of a church, we're affirming that as best as we can tell, this person is a Christian. And Christians know and believe the gospel. After all, the Bible says it's, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the thing of most importance. So when people answer, what is the gospel? I usually look for four elements. The good news of the Bible by which we are saved involves truths about God, truths about people, truths about Jesus, and truths about our response. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He is good and generous, and he is also holy and pure and righteous. As the creator, God is also the king and the judge. He rules and he holds accountable all that he has made. People are made in the image of God. Because of that, all people have deep dignity, worth, and value. But something has went wrong. We see evidence of that in the world around us, and we see evidence of that, if we're honest, even in ourselves. People have rebelled against the rightful king of the universe. They've shirked the king's way for their own way. And this has separated them from their creator and put them under the just judgment of their king. 
But God, even while we were his enemies, sent his only son, Jesus, so that we, he might welcome us as friends. Jesus is the son of God who has existed always alongside the father. But he was born a virgin, became truly human so that he might stand in our place. To live the perfectly obedient life that you and I didn't live, to die the death that we deserve on the cross, and to rise again, confirming that justice has been satisfied. Now, all people everywhere can be reconciled to God, but they must respond by coming to him through his son. And this response involves repentance. Turning from living for yourself, turning from trusting yourself. And this response involves faith. Turning to living for Jesus and trusting in him. Those who do this are empowered to continue doing this through the Holy Spirit who guards them until Christ returns. There it is, the gospel in four elements. God, people, Jesus, response. Now, before I go any further, I'd be remiss to ask, friend, has that ever been laid out for you entirely? Do you know that gospel? And have you responded in that way? Do you believe it? And Christian, if you have believed this gospel, if you do know this, well, I wonder, next time someone asks you, or next time someone hears that you go to church, next time someone hears that you're a Christian, here's something that you can ask that person. What do you think the message of the church is? Or what do you think the message of Christianity is? And see what they say. And after you hear what they say, tell them the gospel. You see, I bring all this up because all four of those elements, God, people, Jesus, response, are in our passage today. The first two, I'll grant you, are a little more implied, but the second two come out clearly. John 12, 20 to 36 is all about why Jesus had to die on the cross and how we must respond to it. And we could sum up this passage like this, that though it confuses the people around him and even concerns Jesus himself, Jesus must give up his life on the cross. And for us to gain life, we must give over our lives to the one who gave up his life. Here's a roadmap for our time. It won't be strictly chronological through the passage. It'll be a little bit more thematic. So when it comes to Jesus dying on the cross, we'll make three stops. First, not everyone gets it. Second, but it's still necessary. And third, we must respond. Not everyone gets it but it's still necessary and we must respond. First, not everyone gets it. Have you ever watched a sports game with someone who doesn't know how that sport works? You know, a game like baseball seems so simple, right? But it's a lot more complicated than one guy tries to throw a ball and the other guy tries to hit it. Yeah, maybe that's the basic premise of it, but how do things like outs work? There are balls and strikes. What are those? There are even rules for how you run around these square-shaped objects in the ground. How does that work? And then I look up at the screen and I see all these acronyms and abbreviations like ERA and AVG and OPS and Ks. What are all those about? Now, you might have looked at your bulletin this morning. You see a sermon title like, Why Jesus Had to Die. And you could be as familiar with that concept as you are familiar with the game of baseball. But if you're familiar with it, you might not appreciate all that goes into it. 
And you might take for granted that not everyone realizes or even agrees that Jesus had to die. In fact, we see it in this passage. So this section of John 12 begins with some Greeks wishing to see Jesus. Now, saying Greeks is another way biblical authors can refer to Gentiles, that is, to people who aren't Jewish. These men might have been intrigued in in Judaism, or they might have been what's called God-fearers, those who are outside of Israel but still worship God. We're not really told much about these guys. It could be that these Gentiles go to Philip because Philip is Jewish, but Philip is a Greek name. Maybe this is their inroad to Jesus. What's more, it's unique. John actually indicates where Philip's from. So it could be that these guys were from an area known as the Decapolis. This was an area of 10 cities made up of predominantly Gentiles, which was right across the Jordan River from where Philip was from. And it's even an area where Jesus ministered. So maybe they heard of Jesus, they knew where Philip was from, and so they go to Philip. And then Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And Jesus answers their request in verse 23. They want to see him, but he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now remember that term, the hour, has played a really prominent role in the Gospel of John. The hour refers to the time when Jesus dies and rises again. But I wonder if you read verse 23 and you think, well, this seems like a strange way to respond to someone wanting to see Jesus. Why would Jesus say this? To mix the sports metaphor, it seems like it's fourth and one, but Jesus punts instead of goes for it. While it might seem that way, Jesus's answer, I think, actually implies something. If you put all the pieces together, it can add up to something like this. These Gentiles want to see Jesus but they won't be able to truly see Jesus until he is glorified, until he dies and rises again. Remember what we saw last week, that this was the hinge that the disciples had to turn on in order to go from misunderstanding Jesus to understanding Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus until the cross and the empty tomb. And neither will these Gentiles here. The hour is here. The Son of Man must be glorified. He must be lifted up, as verse 34 says. But not everyone can understand that yet. What's more, not everyone wants to understand that yet. This crowd of presumably Jewish people tell Jesus in verse 34, they say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, when they say the law, that can refer either to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, or it can be shorthand for the entire Old Testament. If that's the case, the crowd might be thinking of places like Isaiah 9, verse 7, which says the coming king who sits on David's throne will establish his kingdom forever. They might think of a place like Ezekiel 37, verse 25, which similarly says that this descendant of David will rule over his people forever. So this crowd's also confused by the title Jesus uses to refer to himself, son of man. Now they seem to be able to pick up on the fact that this is Jesus's way of calling himself the Christ or the Messiah, but nobody used the term son of man. Well, it's partly why Jesus chose it because it didn't come with all the baggage of their preconceived notions. But for the crowd, it's either that the Messiah dies or that he reigns forever. But what the crowd didn't understand is that this isn't an either or, this is a both and. The Messiah both dies as a substitute and 
He reigns forever. So the hour is here. The Son of Man must be glorified. He must be lifted up on the cross. But not everyone gets it. Not everyone everyone can get it yet. Not everyone wants to get it yet. But even Jesus himself, he knows that this is necessary. But even Jesus himself still trembles at it. Verse 27, my soul is troubled. Now that word troubled means revulsion, horror, anxiety. Why would Jesus respond in this way? You know, a lot of people have pointed out there have been martyrs throughout Christian history who faced the prospect of their physical death seemingly with a lot more courage than Jesus faces his death. So what gives here? Is Jesus a coward? Well, no, it must be that Jesus is facing more than just physical death. Jesus is facing the full weight of hell, the just wrath of God for sinners. It's similar to the scene at Gethsemane. So even though the Gentiles might not be able to see it, even though the crowd refuses to understand it, and even though Jesus trembles at the prospect of it, Jesus dying on the cross is still necessary. Jesus says, this is my purpose and I'm not gonna avoid it. The Father knows it's necessary too. Even think of Old Testament verses like Isaiah 53, 10, that it's the will of God to crush the Messiah. So in verse 28, the father speaks for just the third time in Jesus's ministry. The father has verified Jesus as his son uh, before, and he will verify him again at the cross and at the empty tomb. And in verifying Jesus as his son, he verifies the plan for himself, for his son, that his plan is his son to die. And yet still, the crowds don't understand that it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. I don't want to take it for granted. Friend, do you understand that it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? 1 Corinthians one twenty three says that the message of a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. So do you think it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Or do you think it's just maybe one option on the religious buffet? You might not think it's necessary for Jesus to die if you think that the only type of forgiveness that you need is forgiveness from yourself. You might not think it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross if you think that the only way to atone for the wrong things I've done is for me just to feel bad enough about it for a long enough time maybe even do some good deeds to make up for it. You might not think it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross if you sort of evade the concept of guilt entirely. If you say things like right and wrong are relative, do what seems good to you, do what seems like it feels good. Jesus dying on the cross won't seem necessary to you if you think no one's really responsible for their actions because everyone's a victim in some type of way. Against all these notions, Jesus stands adamant. I must be lifted up on a cross. He says, you guys might not get it. I might tremble on it, but it's still necessary. That's the second stop on our journey. It's still necessary. But why? Why is it necessary for Jesus to be lifted up on a cross? Well, the banner that hangs over all of the reasons comes in verse 23 and verse 28. 
That banner is that the Son of God might be glorified and God the Father might be glorified. This is Jesus' highest priority throughout all of his life and ministry. We saw just a few weeks ago when Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus and Lazarus being sick. Does he go to Bethany just to get his friend better? Does he go to Bethany just to raise his friend from the dead? Is that all that Jesus wants to do? No. Jesus actually has a greater purpose in mind. Lazarus's resurrection would accomplish something greater. What is that? John eleven four. It would accomplish the glory of God. To show off God's beauty. Lazarus's resurrection would show off how much God cares, how powerful God is, how much firm control over all this creation and creatures that God has. Lazarus' resurrection would show off God's godness, that there is no one like him who deserves honor and praise and worship. The cross isn't all that different. I wonder if you've thought of the cross of Jesus Christ as accomplishing something greater than just your salvation. Yeah, like we're going to say in just a minute, it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross in order to give you life, in order to free you from darkness, in order to bear your judgment. But do you realize that all of those good things are not the ends, they're actually the means to something greater? Like Lazarus' resurrection, all of those things actually accomplish a greater purpose, the glory of God. The cross shows off God's utter goodness and praiseworthiness. The cross shows off God's perfect righteousness. The cross shows off the depths of God's mercy and wisdom and love. Friend, the ultimate purpose of the cross and your salvation is how Ephesians 1 puts it, the praise of God's glorious grace. That is why the ultimate reason why Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross. But this passage... Well, it shows us some other reasons why this was all necessary. And quickly, it shows us four reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. Reason one comes in verse 24. It's to give life to those who are dead. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, and if you're reading the Texas Standard Version, that means y'all better listen, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You can think about it this way. Growing crops is a funny business. It all starts with an act that appears counterintuitive. You take what seems to be a perfectly good seed, and it's like you have a funeral service for it. You dig a hole in the ground, You plop the seed in there and you cover it back up. Rest in peace, seed. But if the seed doesn't die, so to speak, there won't be any new life of crops. So it is with Jesus. If he doesn't die, then we won't have life. We will remain dead in our transgressions and sins. Romans 3.23 says that death is the wage for our sin. And 1 John 5, verse 12, says it plainly. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. So my friend, if you're going to have life with God forever, then you need a substitute. This is how it's always worked. Even back in the beginning, you might remember after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they're kicked out of the garden. How does God cover their shame? With animal skins, right? Do you remember that detail? In other words, he covers them with a substitute. Fast forward a little bit in Genesis. When God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, what does God do? He provides a substitute, a ram, to go in Isaac's place. Fast forward a little bit. The tabernacle is set up, the place where God is uniquely present on earth, the holy of holies where God is most present. The priest could go in there on behalf of God's people once a year. How could this priest go in to the holy of holies and not die? A substitute, a goat goes in his place. And you see all these substitutes in the Bible just point forward because the book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. You know why? Because a bull and a goat can't really stand in your place. You know who can stand in your place once and for all? The son of God, the perfect substitute. For you to live, Christ must be your substitute and die. Why must Jesus be lifted up to die on a cross? The second reason comes in verse 31. It is to judge the world. Jesus says, as he is glorified, now is the judgment of the world. I wonder, what do you think about the world? Maybe it's complicated. I don't know about you. When I answer that question, I have Louis Armstrong singing in my mind. Right? I, I, you know, I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Don't get me wrong. There are traces of God's grace throughout the world. And we certainly wouldn't say that the world is as bad as it could be. But maybe the most more important question than what do you think about the world is what does the cross of Jesus Christ say about the world? I think the cross peels back all the veneer of niceness to show the acorn of ugly selfishness that's in us all. The cross shows the depths of the world's evil, that when God became human, humans murdered him. The cross shows the selfishness of the world, that all of these rival powers would conspire together to kill the Son of God because he got in their way. The cross shows us the ugliness and the seriousness of the world's sin. The cross is a message to everyone that says rejecting God's way will end you up here. The cross shows all the world where their sin leads and it tells them either you can bear the judgment yourself or Jesus can bear it in your place. Why must Jesus be lifted up on a cross? Reason three comes in the second half of verse 31. He must be lifted up to cast out the ruler of this world. This is a reference to Satan or the devil. Other places in the Bible speak of Satan's influence over the world. For example, Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He affects the air that you breathe. 
We'll call this the vibe and values of the world. That in a world of rebellion against God, Satan is the chief rebel. But I don't want you to misunderstand. The Bible doesn't present Satan as some type of equal and opposite force to God. The worldview of the Bible isn't dualistic like Star Wars. You know, Star Wars where the dark side and the light side constantly vie for which one is in power. No, in the Bible, there's never a question of who ultimately rules. In the Bible, there's never a question about what the final outcome will be. For example, even in a place like the book of Job, where there is great suffering, you see that Satan isn't outside of God's reach. Mysteriously enough, even the evil he does, he can't do it outside of God's permission. Friends, if that troubles you, wouldn't it trouble you more to live in a world where that wouldn't, wasn't true? So from Satan's point of view, what does the cross look like? Well, I bet it looks like to him that I win and Jesus loses. But actually, the cross is where Satan loses and Jesus wins. It's the fulfillment of the first gospel promise back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman might be bruised, but in so doing, he crushes the serpent's head. Jesus is so great that he wins through defeat. Hebrews 2, we read it earlier, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And now the clock is ticking on his ultimate demise. We don't have a lot of time to reflect on this. The ruler of the world cast out Jesus victorious over the devil. I just remember C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And he writes how Christians can fall in one or two ditches when it comes to thinking about Satan and the forces of evil. That either Christians can obsess over these things or Christians can just ignore these things entirely. We want to try to stay in the center of that. And speaking of the center, the Bible calls Satan a lion that's roaring, seeking to see who he might devour. But a passage like this, John 12, 31, reminds you that this lion might be roaring, but this lion is chained. In fact, that's how John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress presents Satan and the forces of evil. On this road to heaven, the forces of evil are like lions that are all chained, lined up alongside this road. And the travelers to heaven might be mauled by these lions if they veer off the road toward them, but the way of safety is staying on the center of the road. In other words, friends, if you want to fight against Satan, the way to do that is not by hocus pocus, is not by some deliverance ministry, it's by staying close to Christ, the conqueror of Satan. Why must Jesus be lifted up on a cross? Reason four comes in verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and the next verse says this refers to his crucifixion, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I want to be clear, and let's remember the context. Jesus isn't saying that all individuals will be saved. He's saying all kinds of people will be saved. Just remember this same section, Jesus has talked about people who don't believe in him. In this same section, Jesus has talked about people who love their lives too much so that they don't serve Jesus or follow him. So if everyone's saved, if all people are saved, then how can there still be those categories of people? So friends, remember the context. Remember, in this very same section, Jesus has had Gentiles approach him and he's had Jewish people debate him. 
So it's like Jesus is saying in John 12, 32, my substitutionary sacrifice isn't good for just one kind of person. You don't have to work to fit in a certain kind of mold in order to be included. No, my sacrifice is good for every type of person. I'm not just a local savior. I'm the international one. So in this way, the cross doesn't get rid of our differences. It just gives us deeper unity. And do you know what united differences can create? They can create harmony. That's Christ's people. Not uniformity, but harmony. Harmony is uniquely beautiful, isn't it? So you see, the cross is necessary in order to accomplish that final harmonious scene of heaven where those from all the nations of the earth are gathered around one savior. And friends, you know, that's what the church is meant to be even now. Deep differences, even in terms of ethnicity, but even deeper unity in Christ. If that's what heaven's gonna be like, don't you want this church to be more like heaven? Oh, wouldn't that be a compelling witness to the watching world? A place of people where there are deep differences, but even deeper unity? Friend, do you believe that John 12, 32 is true? That Christ is still drawing all kinds of people to himself? If that's the case, then that gives you every bit of confidence that you need to go and make disciples of all kinds of people as he commands us to. You know, just to get practical for a minute, don't have a lot of time, two very ripe but underserved harvests, even in our area, are international students and refugees. All kinds of people, even coming to Cleveland, Ohio. Jesus went to the cross to draw all kinds of people to himself. So, brother and sister, pray that the Lord would show off this cross-created, Christ-centered, beautiful harmony, even at West Creek. So a a couple of weeks ago, we said that the gospel works more like medicine than it works like gravity. Remember that you can be the biggest skeptic of gravity in the world. You could say, ah, all that gravity junk, that doesn't matter. Guess what? You try to jump off a building, gravity's gonna work for you. Now, there might be medicine, on the other hand, that's perfectly effective to cure a disease. And let me tell you something. The only way that medicine is going to work for you is if you actually receive it. For as much as Jesus is adamant that it was necessary for him to die on the cross, he is just as adamant that you've got to respond to it. And we can make three different observations to close our time about that response. Jesus shows us the core of it, the urgency of it, the results of it. The core of our response comes at the very end of this section, verse 36. Simply believe in the light. When Jesus says the light, he's referring to himself. Remember back in chapter eight, he calls himself the light of the world. This is likely an allusion to the pillar of fire in the wilderness after God delivered his people out of Egypt. That pillar of fire is what God used to guide his people to the promised land. So just as that pillar of fire was the light that guided to the promised land, Jesus is the light that guides to the promised land of heaven. So the core of our response to Jesus and to him dying on a cross 
is to believe in him. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Is believing in Jesus just a one-time act? Is believing in Jesus just praying the right formula of words? Is believing in Jesus just raising your hand or walking down an aisle? Well, believing in Jesus might start like that, but it doesn't continue like that. Jesus talks about evidence that demonstrates that your faith in him is real. And that evidence begins with repentance. That's kind of a churchy word, but I'm going to tell you what repentance means. Repentance means you change. Believing in Jesus means you change. Verse 25, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, his use of love and hate is what we call hyperbole. It's Jesus's way to talk about what you value the most. This verse makes it clear that believing in Jesus involves a change in what you value the most. That you no longer live only for what's in this world. You no longer treat this world as if that's all there is. You say, yeah, there are lots of good gifts in this world, like we talked about earlier. There's Subway, and there's uh, uh, good moms, there's Legos, there's porterhouse steaks, there's trips to Cedar Point, there are sports, there's marriage, there's job, there's jobs, there's the leaves in autumn. But believing in Jesus means you've realized that while this world may have many gifts, this world is not Lord. Jesus is. Right? It's been said that the heart of man is like a triangle and the whole round circle of the world can't fill it. All those corners that remain empty will complain and long for something else. Those who believe in Jesus find their all in him, like we sang earlier. They don't find their all in the world. Not only does faith in Jesus mean that your values have changed, Real faith in Jesus means the direction of your life has changed. Verse 35, Jesus says, those who walk in darkness don't know where they're going. So believing in the light means you no longer walk in the dark. It's been explained like this, that believing in Jesus is like changing teams. And when you believe, you put on a new jersey and you announce your new allegiance. But friend, wouldn't it be confusing after you change teams to keep playing for your old team? That would be confusing to me. Now, this doesn't imply that believing in Jesus involves some type of new perfection, but it does mean that believing in Jesus involves a new direction of your life. So the core of how we respond to Jesus dying on the cross, you believe in him. And what is real belief in Jesus? Well, it involves change. That's the evidence. Your values change. The direction of your life changes. And let me tell you something, that evidence lasts over time. That evidence doesn't just spurt up and fizzle out. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time following someone if I stopped after taking just a few steps. It was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross, but it's also necessary that you respond to him with faith. We can observe Jesus talking about the core of that response and also the urgency of that response. Verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. For Jesus' audience here, he's telling them, guys, it's only gonna be harder for you to believe in me after the cross. Even for you here this morning, if, if you don't believe in Jesus like we've been saying, 
that the deepest values of your life, that the direction of your life hasn't changed. If you don't believe in Jesus like that, what we're saying this morning, after now, it will only get harder for you to do that. Conversely, it will only just get easier for you to say no. If the door is open, friends, the, the door is closing. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable about a man who had plenty of stuff, but he acted like his life would go on forever. To that man's surprise, he found out his life was required of him that very night. I know we don't like to think about this, but really, what if today was your last day? God's patience with you so far has meant only to bring you to Christ. Jesus had to die on the cross and we must respond. We've seen the core of that response, the urgency of that response, and finally, the results of that response. Now you say, all this change, Steve, it sounds like a lot. This is a lot to give up. Values, direction. Well, if it sounds like a lot, look at what you gain in verse 26. When you believe in Jesus and your values change, when you believe in Jesus and the direction of your life changes, well, my friend, you can expect to receive some pushback. You might lose friends. You might lose, fa- you might lose family members. But verse 26 tells you that you won't lose Jesus. He will always be with you. You see this big call to have faith in Jesus and all the change that it involves. It involves losing a lot. But look at what you gain in verse 26. Right? You might get laughed at. You might get ridiculed. You might get even worse. But united to Christ, you know what you will get also? Honor from God the Father. No greater gift. Responding to Jesus with real faith. Oh, that might sound radical to you. You might hear a word like radical, you think of extremist. But that word radical really just means change from the root. That's what we're saying. That's what our response entails. A change in the very root of who we are, no longer ourselves, but belong to Christ. If that sounds too much for you to do, you're right. It is too much for you to do. Notice in verse 36, Jesus says to believe in him that you may become sons of light. So you have to look very closely. How you transform from being a son of darkness to a son of light, how you transform, that doesn't begin with your white-knuckled effort. How you transform from being a son of, a son of darkness to a son of light, that doesn't begin with some type of 12-step program. No, how you transform from being a son of darkness to a son of light, how does it begin? Faith in the Son of God. Faith in the one who had to die and the one who did die. Who died not just to forgive you of your sin, but to free you from your sin. Faith in the one who had to die, the one who paid it all, and the one who we sang earlier, changes the leper's spots and melts the heart of stone. Jesus had to die. We must respond. Even in that response, he is sufficient. Well, friends, let's pray.
Lord, we faced an unsurmountable, infinite debt. And we rejoice and believe you paid it all. How could we say otherwise? All to you we owe. Oh, Lord, we confess that the values and the direction of our lives very often are off. Very often are directed more at the world you saved us from than you, the, the one who saved us from the world. And God, give us your heart for those still in the world. Give us your heart, the same one who is drawing all kinds of people to yourself. We want to be used by you as those you have transformed. So would you shine through us, speak through us, and be glorified in us. That is our highest priority. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.